Welcome to Our Tribe, the podcast that sits down with Jewish professionals and entrepreneurs to hear their stories, share their advice, and bear their Jewish souls. Now here's your host, Rabbi Tovia Kopsty. Welcome back to Our Tribe, the podcast. And in this episode, we have the pleasure of sitting down with a personal friend of mine from the Detroit community, Mr. Jack Jaffe, Esquire, attorney of criminal law. And Jack is Jack tells a fascinating story in this episode of his journey back to observance from his secular upbringing. And then towards the end, about 45 minutes in, we get back to that the impact uh, that that this journey had on his practice, on his legal practice. And then we talk about his passion of jazz music, which is a shared passion that we have uh, towards the very end of the episode. I think this is fascinating. Jack is a very honest, emotional person. I think you're going to love this episode. Enjoy our tribe, the podcast. Welcome back to our tribe, the podcast. And today we are very pleased to welcome a personal friend of mine, a fellow jazz musician aficionado, Mr. Jack Jaffe, ESQ, attorney Jack Jaffe of what, what's the business called, Jack Jaffe? Jaffe Defense Team. Of the Jaffe Defense Team. Thank you very much, Jack, for joining us. My pleasure. My pleasure. Okay, Jack. So, Jack, I understand that you, you're not a criminal lawyer because that implies that you're a criminal, Correct. but you're, you're an attorney of criminal law. I practice criminal law, yes. You practice criminal law. Okay, very good. So, Jack, I'd love, let, let, tell us what, what's your story? What, how did you get to where you are today? Um, tell us how the Jewish story weaves in. Let, let's hear it. I would say that, um, I've always had a, uh, a feeling uh, about uh, my, uh, I always had a feeling and, and I had an attachment, an emotional attachment to what I perceived to be a, uh, a Jew. And, and that was uh, to be a, a from Jew. Now, I didn't understand exactly what that meant, but I had a feeling. We had a. Uh, but just for the sake of our audience, some of our audience not familiar with the jargon. So, from Jew, Jack means an, an observant, observant Torah, an observant Jew, Torah okay. observant Jew. So you had an emotional connection to the Torah observant Jew, although you didn't know what that meant to be a Torah observant Jew. Well, the I, I, not in in all of its uh, particulars, but uh, growing up in Squirrel Hill in Pittsburgh, um, there were well at the time. Um, there were several Stiebels, um, uh, even on, on Beacon Street, which is across the street from the Pittsburgh Colo. Now there was a Hofitz Heim Institute and so forth. My mother and father had uh, neighbors that were friends. And to this day, I can still see the light coming from their home on, uh, on Shabbos on Friday night. And, uh, and part of me very much wanted to, uh, experience that, to be a part of that. But for reasons that I choose not to, uh, uh, go into necessarily, but, uh, I didn't do it. And, uh, and perhaps as time went by, I, uh, I, I was only denying 
to myself what it is that I, I wanted to do and perhaps what I thought who I was. But I couldn't make a uh, I couldn't make a connection. You know, growing up, um, my mother used to say, she would say, it's very nice. The whole world is up in arms right now because a, a, uh, a zookeeper in Cincinnati killed a gorilla that was going to harm a young child. There was a whale in San Francisco Bay that couldn't make it out into the ocean. The whole world was up in arms. And she would always say, but where was the world? when the 6 million were being slaughtered. So that has always, that has always stuck with me. And, uh, uh, it, it, it very, very significant for, from a person that was not Shomer Shabbos, uh, had an emotional attachment perhaps. And, uh, but never, I guess, never had the, uh, the wherewithal to follow through, but be that as it may, the connect, the connection, uh, um, has, has been there in some, in some fashion. Um, when, when I would go to New York, particularly when I would go to New York with my, my two sons. And of course now tall, you know, my, my younger son, Baruch, uh, also had obtained smicha from Morsameach, but nevertheless, whenever we would go to New York, both he and my younger son, we would always spend an afternoon. And at the time I thought the only place in New York to go to was Crown Heights. And, um, and it, it resonated with me, but then with the, uh, the passage of time, what would you do there in Crown Heights? You go to the kosher pizza? No. Seven, 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 seventy. Yeah. Just, you check it out. You go inside, you look around. Are you, are you, are, are you Jewish? Have you put on tefillin today? Okay, and then then that's the rest of the story. We would spend our time in the base medrash at seven seventy, uh-huh. watching um, the goings on. Absolutely, uh-huh. and uh, and trying to make you know a connection. I'll tell you, it was interesting. Although the first time I ever went to Crown Heights was the I don't know if it was the morning of or within a day of Yitzhak Rabin uh, being assassinated. And, and I went to Crown Heights specifically because I wanted to see it, of course, but I wanted to get a feel of how the community uh, reacted to the, the death of a the prime minister, secular prime minister, as it were. And uh, as I recall, it was met with indifference. And I didn't, I didn't understand what it was at the time. How, how could anybody not react with, with a sense of shock? Uh, but I didn't, um, I didn't get that feel and, and it took some time to truly understand, but, you know, from some circles, Yitzhak Rabin was perceived as a, um, a, um, a Russia, an, wow. an evil man, an evil man, because he was, uh, he was doing peace, making peace with the, uh, the PLO, with Yasser Arafat. And uh, without appreciating that maybe that wasn't the right way to go, maybe that he was inflicting uh, extreme danger upon the Jewish people. But but afterwards, I, w- I would go and and uh, um, it was in the it was it had to be it. I, I, there was a period of time when I learned with an ace rabbi 
and I wasn't ready for it at the time on, on an intellectual basis, on a religious basis, but there's still, there was something uh, that had an appeal. And I recall uh, one evening we had a question, we were learning on one of the apartments on, on Lincoln within a block of the Colo. And we went in, to, in, he's talking about in, in Oak Park, Michigan. In Oak where, Park. Yeah. And I remember we, the, uh, we were there and who should Rabbi Tolan ask the question? I still remember this very specifically. It was Rabbi Rothbard. Now we're going back, uh, 26 years or thereabout. But I remember going into the Colo. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know that it existed. And I, uh, they had to drag me out. I was completely overwhelmed, you know, with emotion. And then there was part of me that said at that point, um, I want to be a part of this. I what, was, be, what was happening in that in that class? What the evening, evening night seder, evening evening learning session? I just saw what I thought were, and they were, of course, but religious men that were learning at night. I didn't know what they were learning, but uh, everybody was going at it with such uh, fervor, with such commitment. Uh, it, but I, I, I perceive something beautiful was happening at that time. Mm-hmm. And just being there now, experiencing that, the passion of those people sitting there learning. Yes. Right. Uh-huh. And of course, but now I, I have insights into what was happening because I do it every night myself. But, um, but that was, so then there was a, a lapse in time. And then a good friend of mine came to me. I mean, every time I would go to New York, I would tell him, I do this, I do this, I do this. And he was also on his journey at that time. And what he said to him was, it's very nice that you're doing it in New York. What are you going to do here in Detroit? Mm-hmm. So um, I was introduced. So he asked, would you be interested in hosting a, uh, a Wednesday night uh, class at your home? My rabbi has uh, really the summer or before or six or eight weeks before the uh uh, the the uh, uh, Benazman or the vac- vacation period was over. He has time. Can you get together some of uh, our friends and uh, to learn with the rabbi? And so I did. And uh, and then of course we went through the the summertime learning, and then there was a gap. And then the same person came to me again, and he said, "I'd like to introduce you to a rabbi who was a a young." Uh, dynamic, um, totally committed individual. And it was Rabbi Meisels. And, and, and uh, to this day, uh, Rabbi Meisels, uh, I still consider him to be uh, my, my, my Rebbe. But, but anyway, so we met and, and he said, again, can you put together a group of uh, men that are interested in learning uh, the Torah? I said, yeah, no problem. I took, and so every night, I'm sorry, every Wednesday night with, with some exception, but very few for eight years, we learned in my house, um, every Wednesday night and, you know, various topics. We went through the, uh, the Chumash, you know, the five books of, uh, of Moshe. Um, uh, I'm trying to think, you know, we, we went through the, the Hebrew alphabet, every letter and why, Every letter, with the exception of a of the hay that that that, that uh, was you the letter that was used to, to create the world, um, but but the uh, you know but the fact is going back to the beginning. I mean, it was a big move. 
It was a tremendous move. And and finally, it was. A, yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. The move, what was the move? The tremendous move. The move, the move to make to make the commitment. Ah, at least at least to embark, you know, on on the on the road, whatever it was. But I knew that it was a uh, uh, it was a change, and it required um, for me a lot of courage. Because, you know, so here, here's, here's the test, tough guy. Okay. All these years you've professed that you have this feeling, whatever the case may be, it's, it's giving, it's being given to you right now. What are you going to do with it? In fact, I remember, um, uh, davening, uh, uh, in the Kolel, uh, the, my first Rosh Hashanah that I had after I'd made the connection with Rabbi Meisels. And at the end, of Rosh Hashanah, or just as, as it was ending, he looked at me and he said, okay, now you're here. Now, what new obligations or mitzvahs are you willing to take on um, this year? And as, around that time, my younger son um, was, Brent was playing basketball at a small Catholic college outside of Pittsburgh, but he had also been exposed uh, to Rabbi Meisel's uh, while he was in high school. In fact, Rabbi Meisel's would go to some of his basketball games. And uh, so there was a connection, a connection there. But once my son left Detroit and went to college, and it's interesting, the college that he went to uh, was the, I believe at the time, and maybe still is the only university um or at least a non non Jewish. Well, I shouldn't say that. The only university that had a um, uh, a um, I forget what they was where where students would go to Poland, and uh, uh, they had they had a Holocaust an official Holocaust trip. Yeah, official uh-huh. Holocaust trip, and of course, you know, at the time there were three Jewish students in, at the college. My son, and uh, you know, whose grandfather, my share, my my father in law, Holocaust survivor. And, uh, and, you know, he was a very good man and both of my sons were very close with him, but, uh, but anyway, so, so Brent went to, was it the March of the living? I can't remember what the, what the, the program was, but any of it, he went and, um, and then he came back. And by that point, by that point, you know, again, Rabbi Meisel's, you know, was a take no prisoner. He still is, by the way, a take no prisoner uh, guy. Uh, he know he knew his uh, he knew his crowd and he knew who he could push and who he couldn't push. And I guess I fell into the the category. You know, all of my Michigas notwithstanding, uh, he could do it. In fact, I'll, I'll share a story. So um, he didn't push to Davin necessarily, but he said, "I want you to come for Shabbos." So for eight years, you know, this was all you know part of the growth. But for eight years, I I, I had Shabbos at his home uh, until he moved to, uh, to New York, moved back to New York. So what I thought at the time was that I could, the first time I remember going to the Colel, um, I drove and I parked in the Lincoln Center parking lot. You know, there was a wall that separated the, the parking lot from the shul. And I figured if I parked my car there, no one would know that I drove. I mean, I knew at least you can't drive on Shabbos. Um, but, uh, and of course, you know, the, uh, the rabbi said to me, he said, I'll give you a pass this time. Okay. But you can't drive on Chavez. All right. So, but that, Rabbi Meisels yeah, said that Rabbi Meisels, right. He said it in a nice him. way, in a nice way. He would, he would never, I mean, although given, 
there was much latitude even back then between the two of us where there's, there was very little that we, we could say uh, to one another. So it didn't little, resonate so much. To, yeah. Okay. There was little you could say to one another to, to, to tick each other off. I mean, uh, you, you this, felt like you could, you felt like you could have, you had a relationship where he could, he could push you and you, you could, you wouldn't say, okay, Rabbi, forget it. You know, like, I don't want to push. I don't, don't push. I never, I never, I, I never, never said that. Never said that. And I'll say to you, there were times I remember one time and you know, that my, uh, my, my father-in-law was a Holocaust survivor. Uh, that was consuming. I mean, I was, I, I won't say fascinated, but I delved into as much learning as I could about the, you know, my, my father-in-law's uh, story uh, is, uh, uh, is uh, if one would go to the Spielberg Foundation, his foundation, my father-in-law's story is there. Mm-hmm. And a miracle as, as amongst so many miracles of survival. But the rabbi said to me, I remember he challenged me on this, on, on this, on this um, monolithic, if you will, Holocaust Museum. And, and all of the effort focused upon maintaining a Holocaust museum. It's not that it's not that he was opposed to it, but he said, essentially, it's, you know, it, it, it's a it's a um, it's a crutch. OK, it happened, a terrible thing, but move on, you know, learn from this, but don't come completely overwhelmed by it in a sense that one doesn't do anything else. Uh, to understand what was happening. I'll just say that in, it was in 2006, uh, Brent was already, he was knee deep at Orsamech. He was in the mirror for a minute and then came back to Orsamech. But we went on a trip to Lithuania, uh, to Belarus and, uh, and to Poland. And my, my older son also came as well. And I remember it was a, the most beautiful evening, a sky, a deep blue sky, an orange moon. Where were we? We were at Auschwitz. And the museum w- was closed or about to close. I can't remember exactly. But here we were on the, uh, on the train tracks into the crematorium. And just thinking, here I am with my two sons. All right. We survived. Everybody was here. We survived. And they didn't. They're, they're, they're gone. They're dead. We're alive. And, and I can't say it may have been one of the defining moments in my life where any conflict that I may have had about being a Jew, of being, being, and proudly express, proudly identify with being a Jew, it was then. It, it, it that was. was- in, in in your in your journey, was that before you had this relationship with Rabbi Meisels? And therefore, no, no, it was already, we had already been. This was already five years into it. Uh huh. So at this point, Rabbi, Meisels, you you probably discussed your experience with Rabbi Meisels, and, and and he challenged you. He said, he said, at this point, he said, okay, now what are you going to do about it? How are you going to make that? How are you going to become a better person because of it? Well, that was even even before. That was uh-huh. even before that. So you know, for example, uh, as as we know that. Um, the the last the last um, um, the last part of Yom Kippur uh, davening the Nila service, and I remember him saying to me, he said, "If you have any doubt whatsoever, this is going to clear this is going to clear it up completely about about your belief in God." And and I just want to just mention one thing. Um, 
Rabbi Moshe Eisenman, pro, a prolific, you know, writer, a, a stalwart in, in bringing, you know, Russian Jews into the fold. You know, the, the father of one of our community members, Mahoyal Eisenman. So he wrote a, he wrote a, a book called The Moxer Companion to be read during, uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And there is in that book his own analysis of what Nila is, of what Vidu is, of making confession before Hashem. And I, I keep this with me and, uh, I keep the book with me and the, the, uh, his, his chapters on that have become my, have become my, my mantra, so to speak. Wow. I'll have to, I'll have to add to that. Uh, also, uh, Victor Frankel, a Holocaust survivor, wrote a, a, an, a, a, an, an, an atheist read his book, Man's Search for Meaning. I mean, I, I'm not sure what, it, what, what the issues were, but it was very clear. The search for meaning, you know, I, I, if I'm going to drifting a bit because I've had conversations recently with some people to say, the criticism was that man's search for meaning may have been attached to something other than or someone other than God. And, and, and I, and rabbi, uh, I, I haven't found it yet. I haven't had the time this week because of the move primarily, but uh, rabbi um, Gottlieb from Orsameh has written about this. And I, I need to understand um, um, his take on this because I, I get overwhelmed with uh that that man's search for meaning, but I just wanted to say one thing that you know, my wife and I used to visit um, uh, Eretz Yisrael, uh, Yerushalayim, when my son was you know in the yeshiva, okay. and I remember Brent came over, Baruch came over uh, to where we were staying, and he brought me a pair of sitzes. And um, and these are for audience that doesn't know, these are the four cornered uh, strings that hang off of. Many Jewish observant Jewish men's, right. um, you know, they, that they wear them underneath their shirt or over their shirt, as a, it's one of the mitzvahs of the Torah. Okay, so he he bought you but, one of these. But anyway, wearing at the time, he bought me a pair, and um, it was it was a challenge. It was a real that perhaps even more than Rabbi Meisel's. I, mean, I should say Rabbi Meisel's. I had I had I had a pair of tefillin that that he got for me. It probably sat in one of my dresser drawers uh, for three years. To say that dust accumulated on them is to, is to understate. I'd open the drawer, I'd look at it. No, 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 I'm not, I'm not ready for this. And so it took some time. It was almost like um, uh, going into Lake Superior the first time. You know, I wanted to do it, but cold. <laughs> and okay, I mean, it's just it's just water, all right. And of course, what do you do? You go in. Jump right. in and then it's okay. Yeah, and it's so it's okay. Once your shoulders are under the water, you're used to no, no, it's no, it's no problem. And you have to ask the question: What, what, what were you waiting for? What was the delay? With you know, if you want to really go back and so you know, it says it says in 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 the Gemara, uh, you know, the the oral law that better one should engage in self inflicted criticism than a hundred lashes. So the, you know, the, the, the criticism of what, what could have been, what should have been so forth. I mean, one can indulge that for only too long time to move forward, buddy. 
make your move. Okay. You'll, you'll look back and make, and make whatever, whatever adjustments. Okay. But move forward. So I just wanted to say one other thing about, about uh, an encounter with Rabbi Meisels. Um, So, so um, uh, once I, I, I parked my car in the parking lot of the Jewish center on 10 mile road. And as I parked my car, who should walk by me, see me get out of the car? On Shabbos, you're saying? On Shabbos. Ah. He never, he never, he, he looked at me. He didn't, I, 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 um, I, I suspect, although I don't think he will acknowledge this. And maybe this, this was just, that was me. All right. The, the sense of embarrassment, the sense of shame that I had. Right. And so he looked at me. I was going to his, his house for the meal, by the way. Uh, you know, so the, the, the parking lot of the Jewish center is, you know, he, Rabbi Meisels lived on the corner of, um, Radcliffe and, um, in Dartmouth. So right. Two minute walk. And we had no, never said a word to me. Never said, said a word. So, um, so, you know, and at this point in my life. He didn't need to say a word, right? Because you, you got it. You understood on your own completely, completely. <laughs> that you that it was the wrong choice. You felt you know you, you didn't maybe were intellectually there yet, but you felt it was it was not what you should be doing at your level. Right. He didn't need to say anything to it. It was just it would have say, been superfluous. He didn't have to say anything, and that was really his. Um, that's he who he was. Say. And and for the, those who are listening, um, Mike Tress was my rabbi's uh, grandfather. Uh-huh. There is a, a a beautiful book written about uh, about Mike Tress. The book is they called him Mike, and it was written by this author, Rabbi Yonason. I'm sorry, Ro, it's the, Jonathan Rosenblum. Pardon, Jonathan Jonathan Rosenblum. Yes. So so be, so that no one should get turned off. Yon is a a lawyer, a scholar, and he was a classmate of Bill Clinton. So putting putting your the politics aside for a second, uh, the uh, but that was that was his uh, that was his classmate. Uh, so and he's a prolific writer, a prolific writer. But but about his grandfather, his grandfather was one of the it was one of many people that devoted his life that. Um, gave over his entire fortune. He had a, he was a partner in a uh, very prosperous, prosperous shoe polish company at, at the time, gave over everything that he had to save Jewish people um, in Europe during that time. He went to the 19, I think it was in 1943. There was a, a, a summit of religious rabbis that went to uh, Washington DC to speak to FDR Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the president at the time, to tell him, you can save Jewish people. We know where the train tracks leading into the various crematoriums. You know where they are. Bomb them. Uh, but it didn't happen. Another, another, another story uh, about what, what, what Rose, when the rabbis came, FDR went out the back door. And, and who, who, who did he send was this Morgenthau, you know, secretary of the treasury. I think he was Secretary of the Treasury, but in any event, a a very very um, estranged uh, yid from or Jew rather from from his uh, from his Jewishness. But it, but I remember, I believe it was Aaron Cutler. Aaron Cutler met with him, mm-hmm. and he wouldn't speak to him in English. Right. But he had an interpreter, 
But what he said uh, had the effect of breaking Morgenthau down. Broke him Morgenthau. down. Morgenthau did something, right? He was able he to did prove something. something yes, he did. Whatever. He, I don't had, know the he acted on what, on what Aaron Cutler uh, had mm-hmm. said to him. Uh, the specifics uh, don't, you know, don't uh, uh, come to me at this point, but he did something. It wasn't he, the he, bomb the train appeal. tracks. It might have been yeah. something there else. There was yeah. the appeal. There was the appeal to him. So, um, and then, uh, you know, I'll just say that that uh, as time went on, and also I should add the the uh, the rabbis that that I um, I became close with um, were um, were were scholars. I mean, these were very very bright individuals. They could speak to you on any subject, be it law, uh, um, medicine, physics. I mean, the, you know, the, you can look, you can find pi 3.144444 in the, in a Gemara on Rosh Hashanah. Okay. Imagine that. Um, but, but, and I, I recognized that um, I couldn't intellectually, I couldn't win. I couldn't win in part because they were smarter than I was, but also they had, they had faith to back them up. And I, and I didn't have it at the time. So uh, I just felt it now was the point. I had to join them. Now I have to, let me add another thing. So for me anyway, uh, what's most important is that, you know, like every parent, every, every parent uh, concern is concerned about the welfare of their, of their children. Well, how are you going to make a living? How are you going to raise a family? You have to go to college and get a degree. You know, it reminds me of the old joke, three grandmothers are sitting together and one said, well, my, my, my grandson is a doctor. Very good. Other one said, my, uh, my grandson's a lawyer. Very nice. The other grandmother said, well, my son's a rabbi. And the other two responded, what kind of a, what kind of a position is that for a Jewish, for a Jewish man? Uh, <laughs> okay. So, so we, we, um, things have changed in the past a hundred years. Yeah. So, years. so my, my older son is an artist by profession. Um, and, um, and he had an exhibit in a small village outside of Paris. So we went to, we went to Paris. Brent came in from Baruch came in from, um, from Israel and we met. And it was at that point, Baruch said to us, to us, I'm not coming back. I knew what he meant (laughs) and I'm going right on. Right. And my wife was, um, she wasn't so comfortable with that. I only, what do you mean I'm not coming back? No, what do you mean I'm, I'm fully I'm committed? Not, I'm not coming back to the University of Michigan. I'm oh, staying, I'm staying in Eretz Israel for uh-huh. as long as I can. Got for, it. As long, for as long as the foundation will uh, support me, I'm mm-hmm. staying. Uh, you know, obviously the foundation. The right? foundation was the Jaffe Family Foundation. There you go. Got it. But, but, <laughs> but, but, over, but as, time, as time went on, my wife, my wife, and this, this is most significant, my wife... Um, I did, wasn't opposed to what I did um, and wasn't, wasn't opposed. Um, and she recognized also that her younger son was religious and there were changes that had to be made, you know, in the home. Um, you know, one would most significantly was to kosher the home so that when our son came back from, from Eretz Yisrael, um, there'd be no issue, you know, with, um, with the, with eating, having Shabbos, having any meal for that matter. I'll tell you an interesting story. 
So one of the first times after Brent had come back, um, I mean, Shelly and I didn't know about this. My wife and I didn't know about it. We had an alarm in the house. And every time you open the screen door, it would either, you know, the alarm wouldn't go off, but there would be a flash all right, of some sort. And, and then Brent found this right away. And he said, you know, I can't leave the house. I won't leave the house because by leaving, I'll be violating a, a law of Shabbos. Unless you turn off the alarm. What? Unless you turned off the alarm beforehand. Unless we turned it off and, and we didn't, we weren't sophisticated to know that. So fortunately, uh, a neighbor who hadn't taken, taken on Shabbos yet. Uh, and I don't think I had either. It was a, it was in the summertime. So it was a later Shabbos. So we walked to, um, Rabbi Hadar's uh-huh. uh, house. He lived, you know, 10 minutes from where we lived. Okay. And we asked him the question and he told us what to do. And we, uh, we, uh, we solved that issue. But the point, the point was that these are necessary changes that we had to, uh, we had to make, uh, in our lives and in order, you know, in order, order to, um, further our, uh, our journey, our understanding, uh, to enable us to, you know, become closer, uh, to, uh, show, we weren't shown our Shabbos yet. We observed the Shabbos, but we weren't show, we weren't completely. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> uh, this is almost like a catharsis. <laughs> Again, I'm glad I can give this, uh, give you this outlet over here. Well, but I'm I, sure so you don't have the conversation I, too often. So after, after, um, one of the times Brent, Brent was home, uh, I said to my wife, I said, we should be, we should be Shomer Shabbos. And so, um, Brent said, mom, you should be Shomer Shabbos. So for the baby, the family, what do you do? You do whatever, whatever the baby wants. So we made the commitment. So, however, after he left, <laughs> where he's no longer there to support me. I mean, I, I was good, but Shelly still had doubts. So. We had, we, we had made plans with, uh, friends of ours and, uh, uh, and, and we were speaking and, and I said, we have plans tonight. Oh God, right. We made plans. So what, it, what are you going to do? Um, well, I don't think we should go. And so Shelly said, okay, call them up and tell them you're not going to go. I said, that's a problem. <laughs> you know, we can't use the phone. So, so anyway, we, we met them that you night. You have to go there and tell them they're not going to go. Yeah. This was, this was a, um, these were very close friends of ours at the time, but it was a mixed marriage. Uh, the, the husband was Jewish. The, uh, the wife was not. So I remember the wife that we hadn't seen him in a while. So Jeff, how are you doing? And I said, do you really want to know? And she said, what's new? And I said, do you really want to know? Uh, and she said, of course. So um, I couldn't leave the table that night because my wife was kicking me with every word that came out of my mouth because these people thought I was nuts, you know, nuts at it, you know, just turning my back on, on everything that was, uh, that was secular, right? Most importantly, you know, honoring, honoring the, uh, the Shabbos, only eating uh, kosher food, but, but, uh, but, my, but I'll, I'll say that it couldn't have happened. Whatever I have done um, could not have happened without the, uh, uh, the, the, the consent of my wife and not to mention, you know, the, the journey that she also, uh, you know, has uh, undertaken. Um, you know, I don't know that women don't have necessarily the same um, opportunity 
as as uh, as a male does to have a chavrusa every night, go to the kolel, whatever, learn every night. But in terms of, you know, my wife is an artist. She was also a a uh, a, uh, a home uh, decorator. She still is, of course, and that's why I'm still working because she's constantly <laughs> making changes, and it costs a lot of money. But it's my pleasure. But the fact is, uh, halacha wise, knowing the laws be it of, of kosher, kosher, of Shabbos, she's right, she's right on top. And, um, and so that, that has enabled me or enabled us to pursue this life. But also we now have, uh, five beautiful from, from birth grandchildren and, and, um, the Zeta and, and, and the, uh, grandmother have to be. I mean, of course, you know, I guess you know, you'll still love your grandchildren. The grandchildren will still love you. And, and the parents, you know, will still make an effort to, to, to not only create, but maintain a bond between, uh, a parent and a grandchild. But the fact is my wife's, um, perception and her understanding and her desire was that I want my grandchildren to come here. I want them to be happy. I want them to, um, just generally recognize that their, 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 their grandmother, their Zeta are also religious Jews. So that was very, very important for both of us. But again, I have to emphasize this would not happen would not happen unless my wife um, uh, was on board. Uh-huh. And there was a period of time where well, she wasn't, she was in, she was, she had her res- reservations. Well, like she you, just like her, you had your reservations. She yeah. had her reservations. Why? Because, because there was only one other, she, her, one of her closest friends also was on the path at the same time. But in terms of those that weren't, uh, it was very difficult for, for a time. And, and, and I remember even at our, my son's uh, chasana, my son's wedding, there must've been a table of eight or 10 secular women, good friends on my son's, my son and daughter-in-law's chasana to my wife. They said, we're angry. Shelly looked at them and said, what are you crazy? This is my son's wedding. You've known him since <laughs> he was born and you're angry. Why are you angry? Ah, angry. Why? Because, because you've changed and we're and we're not part of that life. And my response was ridiculous. When, when I when uh, me more though than, than and this part, I had more of the emotion because because I didn't do any of the cooking or anything else like that. But I wanted as big a Shabbos table as possible. We would have ten or twelve people at our Shabbos table, and uh, and for me here, please, this is what we're doing. It's beautiful. Can't you see how beautiful this is? The joy that we have. So I was, I was at that wedding, you know, and I, I, I'm so happy that I was part of that, but I don't remember that there was a whole fight and a pile up. Did you, did you get, you got the, you got, you got angry over there? No, I, I didn't, I didn't know about it until afterwards. Oh, okay. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> right. So my wife handled, my wife handled it, uh, you know, very well, ah. but, um, and are these, was she able to, I mean, I want to get into to other areas of here, but was yeah. she able to, um, eventually make peace with these friends and maybe yeah. was there you know yes. did these friends eventually recognize in in your move that that it's a meaningful thing to you and and maybe you know and, and to leave you alone at least well not to leave, it's it's not to leave us alone but you know but, but yes shelly made shelly made um 
uh, amends and, and some of the relationships are stronger now than, than they were. Although, you know, there's, you know, um, um, you know, certain prime time, you know, Friday night, Saturday night, whatever the case is. So, you know, you can't, that's, that's how many non-observant Jews that's, that's, you know, that's the time to so you go to a restaurant, whatever the case may be, we don't do that. And, we, and so, but other than that, but, you know, she's made her, she's made her adjustments with me, not by, not by design necessarily, but um, I'm on a mission. Right. And I don't, I don't have, I don't have time to sit back and engage in triviality. I mean, it sounds very self-serving and it's not a hundred percent, but that's basically where I'm at. I mean, you know, you want, I'm more than glad to sit down. I'll talk to you. I, I, I'm able to communicate on a lot of things, but you know, I, I don't have time to just engage in, uh, full heartedness. I mean, it, it, it stands, it, it stands in the way. But yet, but at the same time, I try not to turn people off either by engaging in what some would uh, perhaps perceive as fanaticism. Oh, he does is talk about religion. Oh, he cares about his God. Oh, okay. <laughs> what else? What else is there? What do you want me to talk to you about? Okay. <laughs> you know, that's that, that I'll tell you very, very something. You know, my, uh, my sister's been nifter for two years and, uh, um, supportive, you know, I mean, she asked questions, she asked questions, but, uh, never, never came on board. But, um, uh, when, when right before she went into the hospital, uh, I kept on asking her, does, has anybody come to see you? Has a rabbi at the hospital come to see you? And what she said was, and I, I, it was just so painful. She said, I don't want to talk about God. Okay, this is about me. I'm, you know, I'm sick. And then she died, you know, a week or two later. That was the last conversation I had with her. Yeah. But, uh, but as it, as it turned out, um, I met with the, uh, the chaplain at the, uh, at the hospital and he told me that he saw my sister every day and, and, and she didn't, uh, I didn't know that. Uh, but, uh, but to have these conversations about, right. you know, the meaning. Right. What's so, like, what's like, uh, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, it's interesting that I'm trying to think of Bark was married at the time, but my mother, my mother moved into a, uh, a, a at the base medrash of the Pittsburgher Rebbe, Rabbi Leifer. You know, his son was the, uh, was the Rebbe in Ashdod, Ashdod in, in, you know, in Yerushalayim. Yeah. He died last year of COVID, but, mm, right. um, but, but the home was converted, the base measures rather was converted into an apartment. And what Brent did was he, um, he had, he had note cards, uh, that, that my mother could see from the moment that she woke up until she went to the, uh, the, the, uh, the restroom in the morning. And what were, what were the postcards? The Shema. It was just so important that, you know, my mother, you know, again, mother, grandmother, even more so would do anything for, for a, a grandchild. And that was my mother, but that's what he did. And every morning when she would wake up, she would uh, look at the ceiling and she would see the postcards that followed her to the, uh, to the bathroom so that she could say the Shema. So. Okay. Now, Jack, I, I, normally I would start an, an interview like this, talking about your professional career. We would just got straight to the, straight to the, you know, like, 
the, the transformation, the catharsis. Uh, so I, I want to know, uh, you're, you're a lawyer, you practice criminal law. This, this whole transformation that you had, how did it change your, your professional outlook or anything that you do professionally? Did it change? I've been, I've been, I, I haven't been as focused in my practice as I am right now. So in that sense, the, my focus, um, uh, again, has been, has been enhanced by this, um, tremendously. Um, the way that I relate to my clients has changed tremendously. Um, my ability to, uh, understand that a client comes to my office, you know, myriad, a ball of confusion for different reasons. And in here, your life is, their life is put into your hands. Lawyer, do something. And, uh, uh, so, so in that set, in that sense, it's, it's, it's enhanced the practice, my capabilities tremendously. And, um, um, I don't, uh, I, I, I don't necessarily, uh, you know, people will ask, you know, are you Jewish? And, you know, I don't shy away from that, but, uh, but, but in terms of wearing it on my sleeve, I don't do it either, except that I always keep my, uh, my head covered. The only, I don't, I don't wear a yarmulke, um, in court and that may be more on me and, or in, in part maybe, uh, uh, with the the element of of people that we represent, but my son wears a yarmulke. You know, uh, he your and, son is with you in the practice. For those yeah, who don't know. we're part, we're partners, and it's 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 no um, it's a no issue. But so in that regard, but but I um, I would say that um, not only in my, in my own life and and my life experiences, what I'm learning, um, I bring to, I bring to the practice um, with every case. I mean, for an example, I represented a, um, a pharmacist that did some bad things. Uh, and, uh, he lost, uh, he, his license was revoked, uh, for two different, uh, instances. I didn't represent him in that, uh, but whether it would have made a difference, I don't know. But here he came to me and he was seeking, um, uh, reinstatement of his pharmacist license. And it was uh, what was important to me was that I read the I read the uh, uh, the the um, Bureau of Licensing and Regulation. I read their their the reasons why they denied. And most basically, the reason was failed to to address those underlying concerns that gave rise to the manifested behavior. So talking about psychological, he was he was making prescriptions and other things that, you know, I, it's, it's not relevant necessarily to okay. the conversation, but okay. the point <laughs> is, the point is, well, let me just, the effectiveness, I mean, I, I was always a good lawyer, except that because in my mind, I was a good lawyer, right? And, uh, and it was me, right or wrong, there weren't other considerations, it was just my consideration. I could get away with it for a lot of the time. But then it finally occurred to, to be really effective. You have to work within the parameters of, of either the law or what the judges will allow you to do when, when representing. I mean, we had a case most recently where it was a first degree murder case and, and we were not certain that the, um, 
that the judge was going to give us an instruction on self-defense. It was a battered, it was a battered uh, uh, um, woman syndrome, a, a, a battered spouse, you know, syndrome. Brent tried the case, but I, you know, I, I can't believe it. I took a backseat to my son, but, but I would, but, but the fact is, the fact is our analysis of the case we we addressed those things that where the judge had discretion. We didn't want to break the box, right? We didn't want to define, but it was the recognition of what we could do within the discretion that the judge had. So so um, that's that's key in any case to understand what you can and what you can't do. But going back to this one case, um. My, the, the, the representation, I mean, this was like, almost like this was handed to me. This was, this was right up my alley. This was my bag. How did I prepare for the case? I relied on, on, on a Victor Miller primarily. That was my whole, my, that was the, my whole preparation with him, a Victor Miller and a higher power. And, you know, Paul, I mean, I'll, I'll defer to you in terms of who a Victor Miller was, but, um, it was that a Victor, it was a Victor Miller. And again, getting back to Moshe Eisenman and how he, how he had written about the, the necessity of an individual, of a Jew coming before God at the moment of judgment or when the, or when the judgment is sealed. Okay. I read it. I, I, I can't say that I read it every day, but I know it well enough to give it over because I read it so often. Uh, but, but, but I was okay. telling this client, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, what were you telling the client? Go ahead. What I was going to say, I was telling this client, listen, man, you have to, you have to, you have to present yourself in a way that, and in a way that you're that you're honest with yourself. If you're honest with yourself, you may have some insights into what was going on and why you were doing it. Very difficult, very difficult standard, and it, it painstakingly honest. So for nine months, we were preparing for this. On the day uh-huh. before the hearing, I said, man, this is a lost cause. I used to beat him up with every, with every Musser Parsha sheet that he'd read on Shabbos. Everything. I would find things. I'd say, give him to him, read it. Right. Day before the hearing, nothing. He and his wife would come into my office. They, she hated him for what he did, but they, but she stood by him for whatever reason. Um, so come the day of the hearing, um, and it was his time to testify. I asked him a couple of questions and then he started talking about God. And then he started talking about his higher power. I sat back and, and let him do the rest. We won the case. He got his license back. So, so I, you know, I, I, um, look. Wait, one has to be, wait, Jack, yeah. this. when you say that our listeners may not know who Rabbi Victor Miller is, but yeah. when you're saying you were compute prepared you yourself drew upon what, what these rabbis had written and that gave you the, the or they had specific, was it something specific that they said that gave you insight in this case or was more generally being honest with yourself that they were writing about? No, it was the very specific things that, that they, they wrote about. Uh, laying, you know, stripping, removing the layers and layers of deception, rationalization, dishonesty, all of that, addressing it. Look, I mean, perhaps, you know, the, the one rabbi, uh, Rabbi um, Dodoya, was that, don't you do, the, 
He, he was a he legend has it that he was involved with every every prostitute oh, known from the Gemara, right? Okay. And 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 who expo- who exposed him? But it was the prostitute. And then what did he do? And then at that point, he realized he realized what was necessary. All right, and 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 it wasn't until wasn't until the day that he died, right? Did was he able to achieve that? That um, that completeness, that shlemus with him and and with God, and of course the story is that you know even even up until the time a person before you're ready to die, you can still change. You can do tshuva. You can do repentance. And um, and so they say that when he died uh, in heaven, what did they say? Yes, you know, uh, Rabbi Dordaya, your 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 yeah. So you can you can. Uh... Fix you can fix everything that you may have uh, broken in just in this one moment. Right. So, so that so it it's to that that um, um, that I that I focus my um, my uh, my efforts. A friend of mine says you over Muserize everything, and then you know, and I'm saying, man, there's nothing you know, that, through Torah alone. I don't know that that you know maybe that was the the. Uh, the the debate be- between the the uh, the the uh, the Ashkenazi the the yeshiva and and the Muslim movement the Vordok again uh-huh. when we were when we were in when we were in uh, we were in the Vordok I'd never heard of it before uh, I'd never heard of Yisrael Salanter and we had an unbelievable tour guide and I listened to this stuff I I almost fell off the bus I I was just jumping. <laughs> just, uh, Bingo! I got it. I finally got it. So, so I I try and 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 bring that bring that to the table uh, when I speak to the client. And and if I if I am a bit overboard, but look, it, it's a you know someone comes to see you, right? You don't want to scare them away necessarily. So it's a it's a fine line. It's a fine balance that uh, that one or a a um, the tight wire that one must walk. But at the same time, I mean, I've been practicing law for 45 years now. Um, still haven't perfected, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm getting there. But uh, I'll say to a client, I mean, look, you didn't come to me for me to tell you how to live your life. I don't want to tell you how to live your life. But some of the advice that I'm going to give to you may help you, you know, in your life. And, and also I'll qualify. So I'm saying, listen, I'm not telling you to do this because I'm telling you to do it. I'm speaking to myself as I'm talking to you. And, uh, and in terms of, uh, forging, um, um, a, a, uh, an alliance or forging a relationship with the client, it generally works. I mean, there's other factors that go into it. Of course, you know, how much you want to charge and, uh, what, what are the, the expectations of the client? But, but generally, um, Hashem, all right, thank God that, um, that, that we, we both myself and my son, my partner are able to, uh, uh, succeed to the extent that um, that we have. Beautiful. Wow. Okay, Jack, there's one more subject I want to touch upon before our time limit is over, and that is the, I mentioned in the beginning, jazz music has, but even though we knew each other before we made this connection, um, it was once we were walking together on Shabbos from one place to another, and, and we realized that uh, my teacher, one of my teachers in college is actually Jack's favorite, um, favorite jazz musician, and he's no longer living, so but his uh, his name was Donald Walden, uh, excellent Detroit, real Detroit area, you know, Detroit, uh, you know, has that sort of grit 
and honesty that that defines Detroit, and they brought it into his music. So I want to know, Jack, having come full circle to where you know, as a Jew, having that emotional connection, and um, you know, to observant Jews, and then eventually becoming one yourself, and and bringing that into everything you do. What is what are your thoughts about the Torah of jazz? Um, we were in. Uh, we were, we were, it's a, I, maybe I told you, I probably, we probably said, we've probably talked about it before, but uh, my wife and I and two of our friends were um, in Manhattan and I wanted to go to YU, Yeshiva University. It's uh, 190th and Broadway or thereabouts. And, and my, my friend wanted to go to Washington Heights because he was knee deep in, in um, uh, Rabbi Hirsch. And also Breuer. Okay. So, uh, we got off, unfortunately, well, maybe the, fortunately we, we got off at 185th street and the yeshiva wasn't there. So we, um, we, we encountered an older man on the, on the street and we said, can you, uh, can you, uh, uh, direct us to yeshiva university? And he said, yes, but before I do so, uh, you have to tell me where you're from. Uh, you know, why? He said, tell me where you're from, and then I'll tell you where to go. So we said, we're from Detroit. So he said, Moshe Luce, Shlomo Luce's father, was was his Harusa, you know, back in the day. So, so he, so not only did he take us to Washington Heights to the show, but we were able to get in, and we, and we saw it. We did a little tour. We spoke to some people. But after we left, we were outside. I remember we dovened. Um, Davin uh, Mincha there. I'm just trying to think if I was, if I was still saying Shiva, a rather cottage for my mother. But anyway, my wife, it's always, it, it always goes through the wife. She saw a, um, a, um, a, an announcement of a, of a, of a rabbi that was a, a jazz musician that was uh, performing in the village. What was this? Well, I can't, I don't recall what his name was, but, uh, so anyway, we, we got the brochure and by the way, I mean, ever since I was 15, you know, I've been a, 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 a devotee and I, I'm saying, I hope that doesn't sound too, too self-serving, but, um, but that was, that was my life, but connecting it to the Torah, uh, if for everyone that's listening, if it's, hopefully you're not too bored, I highly recommend John Coltrane, a love supreme. Very spiritual I, that, music. That will, Very spiritual. Be, that will be a, a life changer. But <laughs> so, but reading, but reading the brochure of the rabbi, um, what was the defining moment in his life, but was rather reading the liner notes from a love Supreme and his, his impression was that my God, I, I, I'm reading Ashray right now. I'm reading Ashray. And that's and how the rabbi was coming. He was coming from a Jewish, you know, like a background in Judaism and then, and then coming to jazz from there. Is that, uh-huh. So he saw. No, 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 well, no, I, no, I think it was just the, the opposite. I mean, I, he was, he was on the way, but I, as I recall it now, but that sealed the deal. Reading, reading, reading the, the liner notes to the, to this album. That helped him on his Jewish journey. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. And, and I remember we, we went to, um, he was playing in the East Village. It was, um, 
on Fifth, First Avenue and Sixth Street. There's so, somewhere in in that area, but but I uh, but I, you know I um, I I find it uh, the music. Uh, I mean, I don't listen to as much avant garde as as I used to, but but the, it, I I think I can, I think I can I can answer this that. The, as as humans we can we can we can um push the the barriers as far as we can right as far as the the human the the human intellect will allow pursuit but it's then at some point um i guess there has to be a recognition that there's something beyond the limit of our of our uh, of our human intelligence and and then and then recognizing that then you give it over to to that's where faith begins i believe that's where faith begins because we've gone as far as we can now you have to turn it over to your um, to your higher power to hashem let me connect so, that to the music yeah what's, yeah, what's so, the but, you know, i was just but i was going to say that 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 um one may listen to avant-garde for example don cherry comes to mind uh you know famous you know trumpet player and in, in, um in fact he has a don cherry has a daughter today i think that's a a popular musician but he had an album uh an, an album uh called Com- complete communion and when whatever what however one would would appreciate that or define that. I mean, I took that to mean that, that, um, you know, everything is, the whole world is, is completely encompassing and we're here. We're, we're in touch with, with nature. We're in touch with people. We're in touch with God. And, 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 and so that had a, a, I, I listened to it 50 years ago because it was cool to be, to be, uh, uh, you know, in, into listening to avant, avant-garde, uh, uh, jazz. But the, but as time has gone by, I, I understand what, what they, not Jews, obviously not Jews, but, um, spiritual, whatever that means. They were okay. Searching. They, they, they were searching for meaning. Searching for Man's meaning. First, and, for meaning. And so, so with, with Coltrane, you know, in particular, um, I'm drawing a blank. Uh, Ornette Coleman, mm-hmm. um, Pharaoh. Imagine what my, my next to Coltrane, who was my favorite musician, and Donald Walton, of course. Pharaoh, Pharaoh Sanders, and 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 I, I, I still listen. I love his music, but listening to some of the reading, some of the notes on the albums when he speaks about um, the beautiful melodies of of Egypt and the beauty. And the flourishing of Egyptian culture. I mean, I, you know, I got, I got to work this out, but no, but it was the, <laughs> but it was their continued search, you know, for, for, uh, their, their, their search by exploring different rhythms or tonalities, what have you the case may be. But I understood they were, they were searching for more. They weren't settling for status quo. They weren't steadily, they weren't settling rather for, for comfort or serenity. All right. And, and that, that has impacted me, uh, tremendously that, that continued search. And, 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 uh, you know, it's not that I, I looked at them necessarily, um, uh, for that, although, but it does have, it, it does have, uh, meaning okay. for me. Okay, that's, Jack. Why I, that's why I continue to listen. Yeah, me too. 
<laughs> there's the, you know, to that there, there's one way that you can, you can content yourself with having found success in a certain, with a certain role and that, you know, like many musicians, musicians, artists, et cetera, creatives or professionals, right. And they're in that role and they do that role well. And okay, I keep doing that role until I retire. Right. But then there's those who are searching for always to, to grow and to understand more and to, and to, and to, because because we're trying to be great, and yeah. those who will latch on to greatness, they're, they're well, they you know you know I, you brought up a very very beautiful point I think, and that is that um, at the conclusion of uh, of Victor Miller's uh, Man's Search for Meaning, no, that's Victor Frankel. I'm sorry, Frankel. I'm sorry. Victor, <laughs> Victor <laughs> so he says there are two type of people in this world. And of course, understanding he wrote this uh, 1946 or 47 after after the war. He said there are two kind of people. Basically, there are the Nazi bastards, killers, murderers, or there are those that go to their go to their their next journey, saying the Shema, and that's how he and that's how he ends the book. I mean, it could have been obviously there are many, many, many people that 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 went to uh, their their death saying the Shema. But I, when I read this uh, the first time, it um, it was it was most it was most profound. And of wow. course, I had to question. You know, you don't believe in God. I'm not accepting that. But you know, that was just a uh, an impression. Can I, Jack? Can I add something to that? That's just like I just heard it this week. Just heard it this week that that this Victor Frankel would never would never have have understood. Um, that the the Jewish people, when they were the, the the populace in general, when they were in the gas chambers, they that's when they connected. At the last moment, no matter where they were religiously, they connected to that uniting proclamation that we are the people of God. God is you know God is God is our God. That's Shema, right? He said. But I heard this week it was the Rosh Hashiva over here in Detroit. He said. But others say that the the people who the Talmidei Hachamim the Torah scholars, when the Torah scholars were in the gas chambers, they were figuring out the answer to a difficult Rambam. Rambam is Maimonides. He said, what does that mean? I think it's really attached to what you're saying here. Even at the last moments, the, the, the person who's always pushing the boundaries and always growing and always growing, which is, which is uh, definitive of a Torah scholar. And, you know, like, and on a whole, on a whole different level, the half deal we say these the musicians, creatives, like these, they're always pushing to understand more and to grow and more and to grow more. So there's like a different. It's not a criticism on on the on the populace, but there's like a whole another level of person that's that's you know the the Torah scholars, the Talmud and that they are growing and growing and growing, and even in the last moments, they're always seeking to grow and understand. Absolutely. Okay, Jack. So, thank you so much for your time, and this this was fascinating. What do you I want to add? Yes, um, for all of those lawyers out there or lawyers to be, remember, my client is not guilty. And then secondly, tap into tap into something that is eternal. There was a rabbi, a rabbi uh, in Detroit. Uh, his name was Shmuel Kaufman. Um, one of his children wrote a book. It was called All for the Boss. One of his, I think it was one of his cousins. One of his cousins. Yeah. But what he would, where Rabbi Kaufman used to say was that I'm not a doctor of internal medicine. I'm a doctor of eternal medicine. Tap into it. It's great. It's alive. It's alive.
Okay. My best. Thank you, Jack. Okay. Good Shabbos. Okay. Good Shabbos, Jack. Thank you so much. Okay. You've just listened to another great episode of Our Tribe, the podcast, brought to you by the Podcast Fellowship and hosted by Rabbi Tovia Kopstein. Tune in each week, every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time to hear more great episodes of Our Tribe, the podcast. If you have any suggestions or questions, email us at ourtribe at podcastfellowship.org. And don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to help the tribe thrive.